0: Size Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, April 5th, we're going to talk about Robert Smalls, the slave who sailed himself to freedom. So, if I had to do a top five, and that's hard when there are 365 options. This guy would be in it for sure. The heroics, the daring, the courage of this man. I mean, the fact that he was not mentioned in any of my school books is just criminal. Robert Smalls, his name needs to be up there with like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. If after this episode, you're like, I need to know more about this amazing guy, Check out this amazing book that I just referenced, I'm saying amazing a lot right now, called Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Escape from Slavery to Union Hero. It's by Kate Lineberry. It is really, really good, and there's so much incredible information about this guy's life. So Robert Smalls, like Harriet, like Frederick, like Booker, he was a child of enslavement. He was literally born behind the house of the man that owned his mother. Robert's mother, 43-year-old Lydia Polite, was enslaved by Henry McKee, a prominent plantation owner in Beaufort, South Carolina. Lydia was a house servant under Henry, and Robert was favored because of that. But Lydia had not always been a house servant, though, and her childhood had been one in the field, working as a field hand, where she was brutally abused. She was afraid that Robert would become ignorant to the abuse that those outside the house endured, so when he was old enough, she asked Henry to make him work in the fields so he could witness the brutality and the beatings. Knowing that there was no future on the plantation, Lydia asked Henry to send 12-year-old Robert to the city to get a job. Robert would get a dollar a week out of his salary, and the rest would go to Henry. Henry agreed. Sidebar, I couldn't find anything online about the identity of Robert's father, and with all the accommodations that Henry made for him, one kind of has to wonder. So Robert started out working in a hotel first, and then he got a job as a lamplighter in Charleston. The sea kept Calling him, though, nothing says freedom like the sea, I suppose, even though for people of color, there is a much more grisly historical connotation. And Robert began to search out jobs on the wharves, working as a sailmaker, a rigger, and then a longshoreman. He eventually worked his way up to what was called a wheelman, which is basically the same thing as a helmsman, but because of his enslavement, he could not formally hold that title. So all of this training not only provided him with extensive knowledge of ships and the Charleston Harbor, but also prepared him for the most dangerous journey of his life. When Henry was 17, he met and married Hannah Jones, another enslaved person who had been farmed out to work as a maid at a hotel in Charleston. Hannah was 22, and she had two daughters already. They were married on Christmas Eve, 1856, and 14 months later, their daughter Elizabeth was born. Three years later, their son Robert Jr. was born. At this point, Robert realized that his own children didn't even belong to him, and they were legally the property of the man who owned his wife. This was not something that he could live with anymore, and he asked his wife's enslaver, as well as his own enslaver, Henry, how much it would cost for both of their and their children's freedom. The price tag was $800, almost $23,000 in today's money. Henry had only saved up about $100, and since both he and Hannah had to pay the bulk of their salaries to their enslavers, saving up to buy their freedom would not happen for decades. Luckily, the Civil War and Opportunity were just around the corner. In April of 1861, Fort Sumter was fired on in Charleston Harbor, and things got rolling. Robert was put in charge of steering the SS Planter steamer, an armed Confederate military transport vessel, under the watch of Charleston's district commander, brigadier Gen- <laughs> Sorry, my cat's meowing in the background. Under the watch of Charleston's district commander, brigadier general Roswell S. Ripley. It's quite a title there. Robert's duties were varied. He dropped off troops and supplies, he laid mines, and he surveyed uh, the waterways. All this work took him not only to every inch of the Charleston Harbor, but also through the rivers and up the coasts of Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. On the outside, Robert appeared content to fight to keep himself enslaved, and he soon earned the trust of the soldiers, the ship crew, and the plantation owners that he interacted with. But inside, he was hatching a plan. By April of 1862, he knew he had to at least attempt to get his family to freedom, even though the penalty for him was almost certain death and his wife and children could be split up. So he gathered together all of the enslaved crew on the boat, except for one guy who was a notorious loose-lipped drinker, and he told them of his plan. The enslaved people who would be making this daring crossing with Robert and his family were Abram Alston, who'd be the wheelman during the escape, Samuel Chisholm. Engineer Alfred Gordine, Abraham Jackson, Gabriel Turner, and William Morrison. Sorry, my cat's sticking his foot under the door. I should not be laughing right now. Um, Engineer Alfred Gordine, uh, Abraham Jackson, Gabriel Turner, and William Morrison, who are all deckhands. Engineer John Small, who was no relation to Robert and his wife and daughter. And an Anna White and a Lavinia Wilson, who are either girlfriends or relatives of others on board. There isn't clear documentation on the relationship. But not everyone knew what they were going to be doing. Robert had made all the men swear that they would not say a word to their wives or girlfriends or kids about this before they set sail because they could not risk anyone finding out. So on the evening of May 12th, 1862, Smalls, the rest of the enslaved crew, and the three white crew members, Captain Charles J. Relia. First mate Samuel Smith Hancock and engineer Samuel Z. Pitcher sailed the steamer 10 miles southwest of Charleston to the Confederate post of Coles Island to pick up four large guns and bring them back to the Charleston Harbor. They returned to the harbor where they took on ammunition and firewood. Night was beginning to fall and Relia Hancock, and Pitcher were eager to get off the boat. They took off for the night, leaving the enslaved crew on board to guard it, which was common practice but technically illegal. Robert asked calmly if the crew could have their wives visit them for the night, and Captain Relia said that would be fine as long as all family members were gone before curfew. The men's wives, children, and girlfriends arrived for a visit, they thought, and they were told that they were about to set sail for freedom. Robert's wife, Hannah, took it the most stoically, saying, "'It is a risk, dear, but you and I and our little ones must be free. I will go, for where you die, I will die.'" Her toddler, Elizabeth, infant son, Robert Jr., and her daughter, Clara, from her first marriage were with her. I could not find out the whereabouts of her other daughter. The other wives and girlfriends panicked. They began screaming and wailing, swearing that they would be caught and lynched, and at this point, since they were now complicit, they had no choice but to join, and Smalls made it very clear that even a peep out of them on board could jeopardize everyone's life. So the women and kids were tucked below deck, Robert put on the captain's hat, and the vessel pushed off into the early morning darkness. Just outside of the Charleston Harbor, there was a massive Union blockade. If Robert could get there, they would all be safe, but between the blockade, just 10 miles away, and them were a number of obstacles. The way out of the harbor was dotted with heavily armed Confederate fortifications. The Charleston Harbor was an important vein of medicine, supplies, food, tools, and even though it had been bottled up by the Union blockade, opportunistic blockade runners smuggling supplies in and out of the harbor. So everyone was on the lookout for someone. Yankees, Confederates, slaves, supplies, smugglers. Smalls literally had to be someone different to everyone. So sneaking through just wasn't an option. It was dark, but it wasn't that dark. And the boat was big and old enough to be really noisy, and it made a lot of smoke so to sneak was certain death. Thankfully, Robert was a terribly clever man, and he had a few things going for him. For one, it is very hard to see the face of a man at night from far away, and even a man's skin tone can be hard to discern. For another thing, he could physically pass as the captain, especially with his hat on his head. Most whites assume that a black man would never dare to be so brazen. Third, Robert had been studying the way that Captain Aurelia spoke and walked, and he had those things down pat. Only the guilty try to hide, so what could be less suspicious than obviousness? The planter had only ever set sail with its three-man white crew and its seven enslaved crew members. To pilot a vessel without its white captain and crew was something that Southerners thought a black man would not only never dare to do, but would also be too dumb to pull off. Thankfully, white ignorance and racism would work in Robert's favor here. Also, even though Captain Relia and his white crew had left the ship for the night to go home to their families, remember, leaving the vessel in the hands of the slaves was common, but it was not a legal one. Current military orders demanded that white crews stay on board at all times, so they were constantly ready to ship out. So even in his small way, Captain Aurelia had helped Robert escape. What Robert was about to do had never been done before. No civilian of any race had ever hijacked a Confederate vessel, filled it with enslaved people, and sailed it to freedom, turning over the ship and all of its guns to the Union as well. The fog began to thin, and Robert gave the signal. The ship cut through the cold harbor water, hoisting the two flags that Smalls and his crew hated more than anything, the first Confederate flag, known as the Stars and Bars, and the flag of South Carolina. They passed a guard station who took note of the ships but assumed everything was status quo. Even a detective on the banks noticed the planter moving through the water and also raised no alarm. There were a series of forts on the way out of the harbor, the most formidable of which was Fort Sumter. From below, the women who were softly weeping and praying pleaded with Robert to sail the ship past the fort as far away as possible to avoid detection, but Robert knew that to do anything out of the ordinary would raise alarm bells. It was just after four o'clock in the morning, and the foggy darkness that had protected them was starting to thin. They were on borrowed time. Instead of swinging the boat wide from the 50-foot walls of Fort Sumter, Robert sailed up right below it as usual. He pulled the whistle cord, issuing the two long blows and one short one that was the Confederate passing signal. The sentry on the wall shouted out in way of a greeting, blow the damn Yankees to hell or bring in one of them. Robert said, aye, aye, and the SS planter sailed past. One obstacle down, one more to go. As the ship charged towards the 174-foot three-masted Union clipper onward, Robert had to flip from pretending to be a confederate back to being a now almost free man. The crew on the planter hurriedly tore down the stars and bars and the South Carolina flag, as those meant almost certain death from a Yankee cannon, and they hoisted a large white bedsheet. However, a heavy fog was rolling in and it blended in with the white flag. There were a few tense moments as the planter chugged towards the onward. At any moment, they could fire at this vessel, which although was not flying the Confederate flag at the moment, they could still be an enemy ship. Thankfully, there was a small break in the fog and the planter was able to pull within yelling distance of the onward. The captain of the onward, acting volunteer Lieutenant John Frederick Nichols, called out to Robert asking for the name of the vessel and its intent. Robert explained that this was the SS planter and that they were slaves sailing their way to freedom. Nichols ordered the planter to come alongside the onward. Robert, however, maybe due to nerves or maybe just some lingering terror from the journey, misheard Nichols and he began to steer around the stern and Nichols shouted out, stop or I will blow you out of the water. So Robert and the men realized their gaff and they came alongside. And as the crew of the onward threw ropes to the planter, the men, women, and children on board realized they were free for the first time in their lives. And they laughed, and they sang, and they cried, and they danced, and some even turned around to curse and shake their fists at the shore of South Carolina. Robert smiled into the face of Captain Nichols once they were eye to eye, saying, Good morning, sir. I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir, that were for Fort Sumter. Here is an eyewitness account from one of the sailors on the onward. Just as number three port gun was being elevated, someone cried out, I see something that looks like a white flag and true enough, there was something flying on the steamer that would have been white by application of soap and water. As she neared us, we looked in vain for the face of a white man. When they discovered that we would not fire on them, there was a rush of contrabands on her deck, some dancing, some singing, whistling, jumping, and others stood looking towards Fort Sumter, muttering all sorts of maledictions against it and the heart of the South generally. As the steamer came nearer, and under the stern of the onward, one of the colored men stepped forward and, taking off his hat, shouted, Good morning, sir. I brought you some of the old United States guns. That man was Robert Smalls. Nichols boarded the planter, and Robert asked for an American flag to fly to replace the Union one, claiming the ship for the North, and then he turned over the boat and its contents to the Yankees. While the boat's ammunition load of 200 pounds of bullets and four guns was an asset, the real treasure was the captain's code book that had not only all the Confederate signals, but also a map of every mine and torpedo that had been laid in the harbor. Robert's act of daring inevitably helped the tide of the war inch closer towards its eventual outcome. Because Smalls was so knowledgeable of the Charleston area and its waterways, he was sent along with the planter to Flag Officer Samuel DuPont, who was at Port Royal. In a series of extensive interviews with DuPont and other officials, Robert shared a treasure trove of information. He shared that even though the Southerners were giving the appearance of having a heavy presence in Charleston, the area was actually operating on a skeleton crew of a few thousand as most of the men had moved on to fight in Virginia and Tennessee. Robert also told them about how the Coles Isle fortifications on Charleston's southern flank were now abandoned and vulnerable, which allowed the Union to snatch up these fortifications, which became the Union area base for the remaining three years of the war. DuPont was blown away by Robert and wrote the Navy secretary in Washington that, quote, Robert, the intelligent slave and pilot of the boat who performed this bold feat so skillfully informed me the capture of the Sumter gun, presuming it would be a matter of interest. He is superior to any who have come into our lines, intelligent as many of them have been. Word got around the North and the South, and there was an uproar, albeit of different types. This 23-year-old hero was now a celebrity in the North, his story being published in papers, and Congress gave the men a cash prize for delivering the ship. Robert's share was $1,500, which is about $38,000 today. In the South, papers were also talking about Robert, but in less glowing terms. This bit of audacity was further proof that the black population had to be controlled. There were also violent calls for the punishment and banishment of the white crew who had left the boat for the night. Robert was then asked to come to New York to help fundraise for formerly enslaved people, but DuPont rejected the invitation. Remember, even though this was the North, a black man still had to get a white man's permission for pretty much anything. And he told Robert that his knowledge was needed in the Union Army, as if Robert hadn't done enough already. So the Navy was happy to have someone joining them that had such detailed knowledge of the Charleston Harbor. But thankfully, Major General David Hunter, the Union commander at Port Royal, stepped in and said that he really felt it would be a good idea for Robert to use his newfound fame and clout to help convince President Lincoln to allow black men to enlist. So in August of 1862, Robert and the Reverend Mansfield French, co-founder of Wilberforce University, went to D.C. to work on Lincoln. They met with the Secretary of War Edward Stanton. Lincoln had previously rejected the idea of enlisting men of color, even though Generals David Hunter, John Fremont, and William Sherman had all pleaded with him to do so. Robert and French were evidently persuasive enough, though, as Stanton signed an order allowing 5,000 black men to enlist, forming the 1st and 2nd Colored South Carolina Regiments, composed of escaped slaves. Smalls was enlisted in the Army in March of 1863, and he was involved in 17 major battles and interactions throughout the remainder of the war. After the Civil War stumbled to its bloody and inevitable conclusion, Robert did pretty much the most savage thing a former slave could do. He returned to the plantation that he had been born on, and he bought it. 511 Prince Street had come up for grabs after union tax authorities seized it in May of 1863 due to unpaid taxes. Henry McKee, the former owner, who had enslaved Robert and his mom and so many other people, sued in court to get his house back, but he was not able to. And this court case was actually a precedent that would be cited for many years to come. The family settled into their new home, including Lydia, who was finally allowed to live in the house that she had served for so many years. Robert spent the next nine months finally learning how to read and write, as well as buying a two-story building in town and converting it into a school for formerly enslaved children. In 1866, Robert dove into the business world. He got together with Richard Howe Gleaves, a businessman slash merchant slash lawyer slash politician, and they opened a store that would help newly freed men to get jobs. Things seemed to be going well all the way around, as in April of that year, radical Republicans were in charge of Congress, and they managed to shut up the vile President Andrew Johnson's vetoes, and they passed the Civil Rights Act, the first U.S. federal law to define citizenship and affirm that all citizens are equally protected by the law. Two years later, this would lead to the creation of the 14th Amendment, which extended full citizenship to all Americans, regardless of race. Sidebar, there is a great series on Netflix right now called Amend, about the 14th Amendment. I just started it, but it is amazing, so definitely check it out if you get a chance. So Robert knew there was going to be this boom in business in the South because all these northern opportunists, or carpetbaggers as they were called in the South, came down to snatch up dirt, cheap plantations, and cheap labor. So Robert got together with Joseph Rainey, the first black man in the House of Rep, Alonzo Ranzier, the first black lieutenant governor of South Carolina, and a few other politicians, and they created the Enterprise Railroad, an 18-mile horse-drawn railway line that connected the harbor with the inland depots. Except for treasurer Timothy Hurley, the entire board of directors was made of men of color, and it was called the most impressive commercial venture by members of Charleston's black elite. Next, Robert started a newspaper called the Beaufort Southern Standard, but it still wasn't enough. Like every person of color, he knew that until there was equal representation in politics, there would be no true equality anywhere. An ardent Republican, Robert once said that his devotion to his party was because the radical Republicans were the ones who unshackled the necks of four million human beings. He started off in state politics, becoming a delegate in the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention, where he fought to make free education available to all children. After serving as a delegate at several Republican national conventions, he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives in 1868. He was known as being effective and passionate, a great speaker and debater, and a man of strong convictions. In 1874, he moved into national politics, becoming a member of the House of Representatives. There was a lot of gerrymandering of the districts as the Democrats scrambled to try and regain all that they felt they had lost and worked tirelessly to roll back the rights of people of color. In 1875, Union troops were ordered out of the South. Knowing that these had been the last line of defense between the still disenfranchised Black population and a violently bitter and vengeful South, Robert argued uh, for the safety of his people, the troops should stay there. But the Compromise of 1877 went through, the troops left, and it was open season on anyone with extra melanin. Conservative Southern Bourbon Democrats, who laughingly called themselves the Redeemers, went on a rampage of violent intimidation and voter suppression to ensure that Congress would be swallowed up by racist Democrats. They started by trying to knock any man of color out of his office, and Robert was just one of their targets. He was falsely charged with and convicted of taking bribes, which the Democrats agreed to drop the charges of if the Republicans dropped the very real election fraud charges against many Democratic politicians. But the scandal had worked and Robert was defeated during the following election by Democrat George Tillman. Robert bounced in and out of Senate seats for the next few years, all the while continuing to fight for racial integration. In 1890, President Harrison would elect him collector of the Port of Beaufort, a post that he would hold for the next 23 years, save for a brief interlude when Democrat Grover Cleveland was in office. As the decade progressed, though, Robert's diabetes got progressively more severe. Compounded with his never-ending struggle against the racist Democrats metastasizing through Congress, Robert was feeling pretty depleted. He was offered a colonel position in the all-black regiment during the Spanish-American War, but he turned it down, instead accepting a post as minister to Liberia. Following this, he began to retreat from politics and public life. One of his last public acts of service was to step in on behalf of two black men who'd been charged with killing a white man. A lynch mob was roaming around the town looking for these two men, and Robert approached the mayor saying that he had sent his own black vigilantes into the streets, and they would burn the town to the ground if the lynch mob was not called off. The mayor heeded Robert's warning and called off the lynching. Two years later, Robert contracted malaria. Combined with his already diabetically weakened immune system, this proved a lethal combination, and Robert passed away on February 23rd at the age of 75 was preceded in death by his first wife Hannah, who had died in 1883, and their son Robert Jr., who had made the crossing with the family but died that same year as a toddler. His two daughters by Hannah and his two stepdaughters all outlived him. Robert's second wife Annie also beat into the pearly gates, having passed in 1895, just five years after their marriage and three years after the birth of their son William. Robert Smalls was buried in Beaumont, South Carolina at the Tabernacle Baptist Church. The inscription on his tombstone is taken from a speech he made to the South Carolina legislature in 1895. My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. My sources today were PBS, Wikipedia, and an excerpt from Kate Lineberry's book, Be Free or Die, the amazing story of Robert Small's escape from slavery to Union hero. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating on Apple Podcast. It means the world to a totally homemade podcast. And if you're feeling social, you can follow Humans in History on Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Robert Smalls. Please join me on April 11th when we celebrate Viola Luzo, the only white woman killed in the civil rights movement. See you then.